Well, good morning. You know, we're starting a new series today, um, going through just different parts of who God is. I was reflecting on this the other day. You know, more and more, it seems like when I talk to people, I, they find out I'm a pastor, we get into all sorts of cool discussions and stuff, but invariably I'll meet people that their first line is something like this, well, I used to go to church, but now I'm an atheist, or I used to be a believer, but now I just don't think it's real at all. And, and I'm not quite sure what they want me to do with that information exactly, or if they think it's going to shock me or whatever, but... Over the years, I've just kind of developed this question that I ask in response when somebody says something like that. I, I say, describe for me the kind of God that you don't believe in. I think it's a great response because it makes them think a little bit. It, it forces them to, instead of just making a statement, kind of critically talk through what they know about God, what they understand about God. I've got a lot of great discussions as a result of that question. One guy once said this, though. After getting done with all his description of who this God is that he didn't believe in, I said, you know what? I must be an atheist too because I don't believe in that kind of God either. Because he had just got done describing a God that was not the God of scriptures at all. Not, not even close. No wonder he didn't want to believe in that kind of God. I say this also is important just in the midst of a, a culture that seems like they're walking away from the Lord. I, I talk to people even within church that a, a, a trauma or a crisis hits their life. And, and usually when they're going through that experience, they do one of two things. They either run to the Lord and find comfort and solace and forgiveness and strength and hope and encouragement, or they run away from him because they get mad. And they blame him for something that isn't his fault. And always when they run away, it's because they don't truly understand who this God is that Scripture talks about that, that is our God. And so I wanted to go through this series, and we're going to talk about different attributes of God, because the reality is we just have a culture that's rejecting God in, in more and more numbers today, and, and they're rejecting a God that they don't know. So I'm going to go through this series, and today we're going to talk about probably the most popular attribute of God. It's one that you hear all the time, it's cited in all sorts of different things, but it's, it's, we're going to talk about the love of God. And, and nowhere is that more prominent than 1 John 4.16, where John writes these words. He says, we know and we rely on the love God has for us, for God is love. And you know, I love that, I love that verse, and I think it's a great verse, I think it's a powerful verse, but there is no verse that is more misunderstood in our culture today or more misquoted than this verse today. And so I want to take a look at it just for a little bit bit. It says, doesn't it, God is love. It doesn't say love is God. Sometimes we, we want to say all love is God, and, and so we define love a certain way, and we just assume that every, God just fits into all those different molds. But it doesn't say that. It says God is love. And there's a big difference between that. It's like saying my dog is a girl and my girl is a dog. Two very different statements, right? And they mean totally different things. In other words, this does not mean that God lets me get away with murder. That God okays that. He does not. It does not mean I can do anything I want to do. And God, because he loves me, he just slaps my wrist and says, oh, man, I, I wish you wouldn't have done that. In fact, there's consequences all the way through scriptures for sin. Whenever you sin, there's a consequence. And sometimes when they just go unrepented for a long period of time and you go to meet your maker, there's eternal consequences for, for not following him. But it does mean this. It means that God wants what's best for me and for you. It, it means that God is for you. It means that God is not against you. And if that's true, then the question is, is why are so many people, right, in, in your lives avoiding God? Why do so many people that you know in your lives, why are they avoiding him like the plague? If it's true that 
He's for us and not against us. If it's true, that he wants what's best for us. I think the reasons are the same almost always. They fall into two linear paths of thinking, but there are two great fears or, or rebellions that people want to pursue in their life. And I want to talk a little bit about that, about why people avoid God, because I think we see it all the time in people around us. And, and if we understand it, it gives us a vehicle to begin talking about God in a different way with them. And one of the first fears that's just out there, it just is, it, is, it goes along this line. And I've heard it a thousand times, and it's just, it's, it's one of those deals. It says, I'm afraid that I'll have to give up my fun. In fact, I was just talking to my high school buddy who was in town uh, over the break that I had, and, and we were talking, he goes, Pas-, he goes, Mike, do you have any fun anymore now that you're a pastor? And I say, yeah, we may define it a little differently, but I have a lot of fun, you know. But I think that's what our world seeks, right? For, for him, in his mind sometimes, he thinks to become a, a Christian means the party's over, right? To be spiritual means to be miserable. And to be honest, we have a, a culture that's very interested in having fun these days. We're very interested in having fun these days. We see that in all the different things that are out there to, to kind of occupy our time or for us to spend our money on or for us to go and do. We turn on the TV and it says stuff like this, you only go around once in life or go for it with all you've got. And to be honest, those two phrases, great pieces of advice. The problem is that television has given us a particular image of fun that's a little different than God's. For example, which sounds more fun to you, a Bud Light cruise or Sunday school? Why are you laughing? That's crazy, right? We get this particular image of fun, and television has ultimately sold us a lie that says if you buy our product, you'll be happy. Or if you experience this particular event, you'll be overjoyed. Or if you go to our concert, if you go to this exotic place, you'll be happy, and you'll have no more worries. You'll have fun. One of the commercials that used to get me when I was younger was these two guys are sitting out by a lake, and it's real calm, and they're having a beer, and one guy goes, it doesn't get any better than this, you know? And I was thinking that would be a lot of fun, just to have that peaceful moment and to be there for that little bit. And, but the reality is it does get a lot more fun, and it does get a lot better. Let me share with you a different perspective. See, the reality is that God is so much better than that. The things that you see on TV, the things that you see in those commercials are artificial sweeteners, and, and they just don't last. They're fun for a while always, but they just don't last. And 1 Timothy 6.17 says, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment I think that's interesting. God's just saying here that he wants you to enjoy life. He doesn't want to take your fun away. In fact, Jesus spoke more about being happy than he did about heaven, interestingly enough. In Matthew eleven nineteen, 19, it says Jesus came enjoying life. But Jesus just always defined fun a little differently than the world. And I want you to think about, okay, the Bud Light cruise or sitting on the beach or whatever it is that you think is the ultimate fun. And I want you to compare that to some of the things that God says is fun and, and which is more lasting and which would make more of a difference. See, God would say that fun is having a clear conscience and not having to beat yourself up all the time. Fun is a happy, unified family. And with all the family dysfunction and families breaking apart, I know people that would give anything to restore what they had before it all fell apart. Fun is laughing in the church. Fun is having friends who don't manipulate you because they're Christians. Fun is enjoying the world that God has made. That's fun. And nobody should have more fun than Christians. Nobody. But he just defines it a little bit more differently. It, it is a better life. It is a more peaceful life, a more joyous life when you get serious about what is actually 
things that give you joy in this life. There's a second fear too that kind of permeates so much of the stuff and it's this, and you'll hear this lots of times, and this is one of my buddy's big one, but I'll lose my freedom. In other words, I won't get to do what I wanna do. I won't get to be the boss. And the world defines freedom as this today, and probably more so today than any time in my lifetime, but they define freedom as a life without any restraint. Do anything I want to do, say anything I want to say without anybody telling me yes or no. Unless you tell me no, then I'm going to tell you no and we're going to get into a fight about it, right? But that's what our world says is freedom today. I can do anything, say anything I want with no repercussion, with no consequence. We call it the political correct culture, except it's very one-sided. But that's what we see in the news, that's what we see in our schools, that's what we see in our neighbors. We have parents who worry about the kind of music that our kids are listening to today, and probably with good reason for different, for different reasons. But to be fair, the, the words of our day and the words of our parents' day weren't much better. The, the lyrics to Frank Sinatra's all-time classic, My Way, are much worse than many of the songs that our kids are listening to today. Frank would sing, I did it my way. Everybody got burned by me, but I did it my way. I left five marriages behind, but I did it my way. Total selfishness, total narcissism. But he says, I had my freedom. I'll give you a couple of examples of what our freedom has brought us, at least this worldly freedom that we're looking at. What has sexual freedom given us in our culture today? It's given us AIDS and social diseases and abortions and dysfunctional families and dysfunctional marriages, and the list goes on and on and on. What has chemical freedom given us in our country today? It's interesting. I'll just, I'll just reference this one thing that I saw this week, and I'm sure it was to attack the... Um, the marijuana proposition that's on the board, but there's this commercial, and it was done by the governor of Colorado and the mayor of Denver, and they were just citing statistics saying that the car crashes and fatal accidents have gone up astronomically because more people are driving under the influence of something, that they're actually selling candy to kids that are laced with marijuana, and that all the perks they were supposed to get, I guess they didn't get. But it's not just Colorado, is it? We live in a culture that has a lot of grade school addicts. We're actually the most chemically dependent society in the world right now in America. What has credit card freedom given us? 146 easy payments. The only thing is there's no easy payment. They're all hard. Trillions of dollars in national debt, $20 trillion. And do we get that we have to pay that off? We have to pay it off eventually. It's like if you run up $40,000 in your credit card, eventually they come a-knocking. Eventually they come a-calling. I came across a quote from, from Hillary Clinton this week. It says, if there's any grandparents that are concerned about the debt that they're leaving their grandkids, they're invisible. I don't know if that's true, but I know that I don't see a lot of people concerned about it. Not in politics, not when I talk to people. And yet eventually, they're going to come a-knocking. See, the reality is you're not as free as you think you are. I, I watched another interesting thing on the news lately, and it was just talking about this idea of the importance to vote. I, I talked to a lot of people saying, I'm just not voting, as if there's some third candidate out there that they're just magically going to vote for if they don't vote for anybody. But he was just making the point of, if you don't vote, you're still going to deal with the consequences of whoever is elected. It's still going to impact your life. It's still going to make a difference. He says, you've got to vote. You've got to look at the issues. You, if you can't like either character, you've got, to, you've got to vote. Because either way, you're going to deal with the consequences of who wins. I'll say this again. You're not as free as you think you are. 
The Bible teaches that with every choice that you make, there are consequences. There just are. You're free to live any way you want to live. That's true. That's the free choice that God gives us. But once you make that choice, you are no longer free. You sow what you reap. The Bible says this about freedom. Jesus says in John 8, 36, he says, if the Son, if Jesus sets you free, you'll be really free. So again, he's just saying, I define freedom a little bit differently than the world. See, real freedom is freedom from guilt. It's freedom from worry. That would be amazing. It's freedom from bitterness. And if you look at our electoral, this election cycle right now, that would just transform our country right there. Freedom from death because you know where you're going. You're going to heaven. Freedom from, to be yourself. Freedom to quit pretending. He says that's what real freedom is. So how do you overcome these kind of fears that our world seems to have about our God? And God says you begin or you start to answer those questions by understanding first for yourself how much God actually loves you. Because he does. See, God is not at all the way people think he is. He doesn't get his kicks out of making you miserable. He doesn't. But I think to explain that to others, you first have to realize how much he loves you. And, and Paul gives us this great example in Ephesians 3, 17 and 18. I'm going to use it kind of as a, a model for talking about God's love today. But he says this, I pray that you will grasp how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for you. I want to look at that because I, I, I think sometimes we know God loves me, but we just don't really understand all that that means. So I'll give you this. God is, is, is wide enough to include everybody. His love is wide enough to include everybody. That means he loves the world. In Psalm 145, verse 17, it says, the Lord is loving toward all that he has made. He's talking about creation. That means everybody. In John 3, 16, it says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world. So whoever who would believe in him would have eternal life. So I, I need to make this point real quick. As we talk about God loving the world, God loving his creation, does that mean that everybody he loves gets to go to heaven? No. What he saw is that a world that was destroying itself because of its sin, a world that there was no way that they would make it to heaven, and so he sent Jesus into the world, which is why we're called Christians, right, Christians? He sent Jesus into the world to be our Savior, to save us from this life of sin, to save us from our destruction so that we could spend eternity with him in heaven. He didn't want any of us to die. He didn't any one of us to go to hell. He wanted all of us to be in heaven, and so he sent us Jesus. So let me make a clarification that while he loves us all, it's only those who receive Jesus that get to be in heaven. It was his life raft, his life preserver that he threw to us on this earth because he loved us, because he wanted to provide a way. I think any way to understand that is a parent toward its child. You know, we have kids and as they grow up, sometimes they make decisions that cause us to, to grieve that causes us to get angry, that causes us to, to, to be embarrassed at times. But we always love our kids. There's consequences that our kids will face because of their actions and because of their decisions, but very seldom does that take away the love of a parent. That helps you understand this aspect of God's love toward his creation. His love for us is universal. And the good news of that is it just means that he loves you. The bad news, it means that he loves his enemies just as much. For example, he loves Lions fans, and he loves Packers fans. <laughs> now, sometimes, even though it doesn't say it in Scripture, I think he loves Packers fans more, but he says it's all even. He loves Republicans, and he loves Democrats. I know, I just blew your mind right now, didn't I? He loves Hillary, and he loves Donald. He loves them individually. He loves them because they're his creation. Now, he may not 
approve of everything that they're doing, but he loves them. Okay, now I'm going to stretch this a little further. He loves America, and he loves the individuals that make up ISIS. He doesn't love what they're doing. He, to be honest, does. He doesn't love what we're doing, but he loves the individuals that make up his creation, and he loves them unconditionally. See, God never made a person that he didn't love. There are no accidents, and he loves you. He loves you very, very, very much, and you matter to him. And he doesn't make junk. And if you could just grab hold of that one piece of the truth, that he doesn't make junk, it would transform your life. Because it would just mean that if God likes me and we're okay, then it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about me. I'm still okay because God thinks that much of me. And so I don't need the props anymore to make me feel good about myself. I don't need to wear certain kinds of clothes to make me feel okay, and I don't need to drive a certain kind of car to prop up my faltering ego. I don't need them because God has looked at me and said, I'm okay. And so he made you, and he loves you, and his love is wide enough to incorporate everybody. There's a second part of it, too. God's love is long enough to last forever. Jeremiah 31.3, says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And so in Psalm 89, verse 2, it says, God's love will last for all time. And to be honest, it's so different than our kind of love. I mean, human love, it just seems like it wears out all the time. It can, it does. I think that's why you see so many divorces out there today. It just wears out. I, I even know a lot of people that are still married right now but don't love each other anymore because it just wears out. It has limits. It dries up. And you know why there's so many divorces? I'll give you the simple answer that is the answer all the time. It's that people quit trying. They quit trying and they have an affair. They quit trying and they stop communicating. They quit trying and they just distance themselves over time. It's a real thing. And it's affecting our culture big time. And that's why you have to have God's love in your marriage if it's going to last. You need a love that will keep on going, that will self-sustaining, that will give you the courage and the strength and the hope to keep on trying when things get brutal. I don't know how marriages last without them, to be honest. Because human love, it just wears out, and you can be hurt. But God's love, it never wears out. Why? Because God's love is patient and persistence and persevering. And isn't that encouraging that God will never give up on you no matter what you've done in your life, no matter what you will do in your life? He will continue to seek you out. He will continue to call to you. He will continue to woo you back to him so that you can spend eternity with him in heaven. That he'll never, ever give up on you. That's a big deal. And it should provide comfort to those that have been hurt. It's wide enough to include everybody. It's long enough to last forever. And so God will never love you more than he does right now, and he'll never love you less than he does right now, and he'll love you on your good days, and he'll love you on your bad days, because his love is not conditioned by your response. God is love. It's unearned, and it's undeserved, and it's ours to receive. And that is the love that he has for this world. It doesn't mean everybody gets to go to heaven. But it means as his creation, he has this incredible love. You go to the, the flood narrative, and it's when he destroyed the world. And said it grieved him. He had grief and sorrow over the choices that mankind had made. That he had to give this horrible consequence. But his love is more encompassing. God's love is high enough to be everywhere. And now it starts to narrow down toward his children, toward those who believe in Jesus. In Romans 8, 39, it says, neither heights nor depths nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, if you believe in Christ, there's no place that you can go where God's love isn't. You'll never be separated from his love. 
Nothing, no circumstance, no situation can separate you because God's love is everywhere. And so if you want an antidote to loneliness, this should be it. You'll never be separated from God's love, from his presence, from his care in your life. And the fact is we do lose loved ones. If you're married right now, one of you is going to die first and the other is going to grieve over that. But if you're a Christian, you never have to be lonely for very long because Christ is there. Because you can tune into God's love, his presence, his care, his comfort, his strength, his hope. And so I'm not talking about a religion here, am I? I'm talking about a relationship with Jesus that matters, that it makes a difference. His love lasts forever. His love is everywhere. And then there's this last one. God's love is deep enough to meet your needs. And he's promised to meet the needs of those that he calls his children, those who believe in Jesus. In Psalm 40, verse 11, he says, my only hope is in your love. For my problems are too big for me to solve. They're piled over my head. Saying I'm going under for the last time. I'm sinking. The fact is, is God's love is not shallow. It's not superficial, but it's profound. And no matter what problem you have, his love is deeper than your problem. Some of you are in deep despair, deep trouble, deep stress. You've gone through deep problems, emotional problems, physical problems, financial problems. God's love is deeper still. Some of you in the last few weeks or the last few months have hit bottom. Maybe financially and you think I'm going broke or maybe it's emotionally or your marriage has hit bottom or you're having health problems and your health has hit bottom or whatever it is and you're frustrated and you think, I'm going under. And you start wondering, where is God in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of this horrible time? And Deuteronomy 33, 27 tells us, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath you are his everlasting arms. And so when you hit bottom, once underneath the bottom, God is. And so I'll give you this imagery Drop into his arms of love. And I love the imagery of dropping, knowing that somebody's there to catch you. It's, it's dropping the control that you're trying to have over your life. It's dropping all the worries that you're continually consuming yourself with. It's dropping the anxiety. It's dropping into the arms of God who loves you and will hold you and who will care for you. Let him catch you and support you when there's nowhere else to go. You know, I have three kids, and the youngest will still come to me every once in a while, and she'll say, Daddy, how much do you love me? I'll go, this much. And she goes, I love you this much all the way around the world, and then we'll just keep elevating it, you know. But I wanted to give you that, and I want you to think about going to Jesus and asking him, Jesus, how much do you love me? And Jesus simply opens his wife's arms wide open on the cross, and he says, I love you this much. I love you so much it hurts. When you start to see that, you start understanding how much God loves you, how much you matter to him. And that that's why he did it. That's why he sent Jesus into this world because he couldn't stand the thought of you not spending eternity with him. He wants you to be with him. He loves you. He cares that much. And he says, all I want you to do is believe that I sent him. Believe that he's here for you. Believe that he cares. And for those that do, their promise is that we will never, ever be separated from the love of God. And all God's people said, amen. Let us pray. Yeah, we love you so much. And I, th I think seldom is the time where we sit down and we just think about the depth of your love for us. We kind of get it, but I don't know. We go through seasons like this in our country where there's just so much hatred filling the airwaves and there's so much hatred around us and the conversations and 
People seem to only be looking out for themselves, and we see so little love. And maybe that's why we don't think about it so much. It's hard for us to imagine that we matter that much to you, that you care that in depth about what's going on in our lives, that you're there for us every single moment, and you provided a way for us to be with you forever. Father, let us this morning take a pause and just thank you for your incredible love for us. And may that pause give us the strength to show that love to others in our life in a more renewed way, in a way that makes a difference. And we pray that today in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.